The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. We want to welcome you to our very last Sunday evening services at White Oak Baptist Church. Next Sunday morning, we will be meeting at our new location, 10.30 a.m. at 1500 West Sam Houston Parkway North. That's on Beltway 8, for those of you who don't recognize the fancy title. We'll get maps are down here. I'll go over directions in a little while. Scripture teaches that the body of Christ is interdependent. We are all part of the body of Christ, Christ is our head, and at the point of our salvation, every believer is given a number of spiritual gifts, but we're also called into spiritual service. Each member of the body of Christ is members of one another. It's part of our membership in the body of Christ. It's our responsibility as ambassadors for Christ to support the local church ministry as well as to support foreign missions. Scripture says that as every man purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a generous, grace-oriented, grace-oriented giver. As the men come forward to take up the collection, let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we do thank you for your grace, your goodness, the way you have supplied for us in our uh, new location, a new place to meet. Father, we thank you for all of your many logistical grace blessings and our gifts now and our offerings to the church is but a token of our gratitude for all that you have done for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. And then the other thing that you can put on your long-range calendar is that we will be hosting the Pastors' Conference for Chafer Seminary March 13th at our new location. I think that just about covers all the announcements, and if we're not exhausted yet, Morgan, uh, what time on Saturday should people, the prep school is going to be at 10 o'clock according to this. Okay, 10 o'clock Saturday if you want to come help with last minute logistics at the new location. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. 
For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study this evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you that you have provided a place for us to meet. We thank you for the fact that during the last 18 months or so, you have provided this location. And it has allowed us to grow and to become established and stable. And now we move on to the next stage. And Father, due to your grace, we have the resources to do this and we express our gratitude. Father, we thank you for your word that strengthens us, that guides us, that directs us, that gives us information on how to live our lives that you might be honored and glorified in time and in eternity. Now, Father, as we study your word this evening, we pray that we would be challenged by the things that we study and that we would be responsive to that challenge. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going through the foundation for living. The foundation for living is focusing on the skills for the spiritual life. This is the second part of a two-part series that dealt, first of all, with the foundation for life, which had a focus more on salvation-oriented issues and basic doctrines related to God and Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ's work on the cross. In this series, we're looking at things that pertain more to your spiritual growth, your spiritual advance, and that which provides a foundation for our spiritual life. As such, we're looking at the foundational spiritual skills in these first five lessons. And these foundational spiritual skills must be mastered as we grow out of spiritual infancy and through spiritual childhood. The first is confession of sin, recognizing that every time we sin, it breaks fellowship with God. Scripture says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Therefore, we must have a solution to post-salvation sin, and that is confession. We admit or acknowledge our sins to God. At that instant, we're restored to fellowship. God, the Holy Spirit's sanctifying ministry can... uh, Continue. It is stifled or squelched or quenched during our time of carnality. And so we can begin to walk by means of the Holy Spirit, and His filling ministry is again operational as He uses His Word to fill us, to fill our thinking, and to strengthen us in our spiritual advance. This works together with our faith such that we not only walk by means of the Holy Spirit, we walk by means of faith and not by sight. We looked at the faith rest drill last time and what's involved in mixing our faith with the promises, principles, and procedures that are outlined in the Word of God. And that takes us to the next basic spiritual skill, 
which is grace orientation. And what you see is as we look at walking by the Spirit, we talked about walking by means of the Spirit. Then we looked at the faith rest drill, that we walk by means of faith. So obviously these work together with one another. And then when we get to grace orientation in some of our opening verses, you will see that there is a connection between recognizing the sufficiency of God's grace in providing everything we need to handle any circumstances in life and what He has provided for the faith rest drill in terms of His promises. So all of these basic skills overlap and are interconnected. As I thought through how we could take these basic skills, and my approach in this study is to try to take these skills and rather than teach them in simply an abstract form, focusing on basic uh, principles or or basic uh, definitions, I want to put some flesh on these uh, spiritual skills so we can see how they work in real-time situations in individuals' lives. And perhaps the most clear passage that deals with this is in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. This is a passage that is familiar to many people because this is where Paul talks about the uh, thorn in the flesh and how he responded to it. And so we have to look at this passage because it gives us an idea of how the Apostle Paul dealt with a particular kind of adversity which he identifies as a thorn in the flesh. And in that adversity, we see how he uses the grace of God to handle the external pressures of adversity that he faced in his life. This section begins in verse 7. Paul says, And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above all measure. Now, let's take a minute just to focus on the context. In this context, Paul has been talking about the fact that he was caught up into paradise, that is the that is heaven. Paradise, prior to Christ's work on the cross, was not located in heaven, but it is now Jesus Christ took Captivity captive took the Old Testament saints into heaven, and so the location of paradise is now in the third heaven. And there he received certain revelations. God disclosed certain truths to Paul that he was to reveal in his teaching and in his writings in the New Testament. And of course, this would be quite a heady experience, and it is likely that someone who had gone through that kind of experience was given the kind of gifts that the Apostle Paul was given, had the kind of talents and education that the Apostle Paul had, would be, could easily succumb to arrogance. And you have numerous references in this passage to boasting. If you just look back at the last chapter, he talks about boasting back in the verses from 16 to 21. He mentions boasting two or three times. He mentions boasting in verse 30. He mentions boasting in chapter 12, verse 1. He mentions boasting twice in 12.5. He mentions boasting again in 12.6. He mentions boasting again in 
12.11. So obviously there's a context here of dealing with arrogance because of who he was and what he had and his natural, uh, natural abilities. And so in the context of teaching him not to rely upon his own talents, his own abilities, his own strengths, his own intellectual skills, which were powerful. The Apostle Paul was one of the most brilliant men in history, just in terms of his native intellect. He was one of the most educated men in his generation, and it would be very easy for someone of his talents and abilities to try to live the Christian life, to try to execute the ministry that God gave him just on the basis of his own education, his own ability, and his own talents. So God sent him a particular test, which is classified in verse 7, as a thorn in the flesh. Now, people have tried to identify this all kinds of different ways over the years. Some have said it was his health. Others have said it was his eyesight, because in Galatians he talks about the fact that he see with what large letters I write that he obviously had some sort of eye problem. Uh, whatever it may be, I think that many people ignore the context of chapters 11 and 12, where he talks about this thorn in the flesh. It seems to me that the thorn in the flesh in verse, that he mentions in verse 7 contextually has to do with the constant antagonism, the constant persecution, the constant rejection that the Apostle Paul faced. Think about it. Here is a man who has been taken into the uh, paradise of God into heaven and who has received direct revelation knew more about God and his plan and his purposes for human history had a better grasp on the dynamics of the cross than any other human being in history and that would be something that would give him tremendous pride and arrogance but everywhere he went knowing he had the truth he was persecuted in incredible ways in the immediate context of verses 7 through 10 in chapter 12, he concludes by saying, after he recognizes the principle of grace, he concludes by saying in verse 10, well, I'll put that up on the overhead in a minute. He concludes by saying, Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That's his conclusion. That's the lesson he learns from understanding grace orientation. That comes at the end of this little paragraph that focuses on being a thorn in the flesh. But if we look at the overall context, go back to the last paragraph in chapter 11. And there he also outlines these persecutions and this rejection that he encountered. In verse 22 of chapter 11, he says, Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. He's talking about the rejection he's received at the hand of his uh, fellow Jews. He says, Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I more so. In labors more abundant. And this is where he starts to outline the adversities that he has encountered and gone through as a minister of the gospel, as an apostle. He says, in, in labors more abundant, he has had to labor. He's labored as a, and com, as a common laborer in his tent-making business, as well as uh, 
one who is involved in the sale and promotion of those tents, in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in stripes he's talking about being, uh, being whipped, being beaten, in prisons more frequently than any of the other apostles, in deaths often. In other words, he was threatened with death more frequently. So from the, in verse 24 he says, From the Jews, five times I received forty stripes minus one, forty lashes minus one. The Jews did not believe that they should give forty lashes. That would kill somebody, so they, only, they stopped at thirty-nine instead of going to forty just in case somebody miscounted. That was one of the benefits of legalism. You didn't have to go through all 40. The rabbis were afraid that if you exceeded 40, it would, it would break the Mosaic law. So just to make sure they didn't miscount, they only gave 39 lashes. So Paul says, five times I received 39 lashes from the Jews. Three times I was beaten with rods, beaten with sticks, canes, bats, whatever. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In other words, he was just stranded at sea, floating along in the water for a, uh, a day and a night. In journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen where his life was threatened, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often. And that's not a self-imposed fast. That's just he didn't have the resources and he went without food. He missed a few meals. In cold and nakedness, besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. So all of this just went beyond the normal travails of life the normal struggles we have just living in the devil's world and dealing with the uh, ad- normal adversities and discomforts of like life. And he says, Who is weak? And I am not weak. Who is made to stumble? And I do not burn with indignation. So he just enumerates here, and several times throughout Second Corinthians, he makes reference to the fact of how many times he goes through different adversities. This is the most detailed list. And it's in the middle of these two statements about this adversity that he talks about how God was using this to limit his arrogance and to teach him complete dependence upon God. So in verse 7 he says, Lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of these revelations and his responsibilities and everything that God gave him, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. And literally that word for messenger is the Greek word angelos, which could be translated an angel of Satan. And I believe that what he's referencing here is that all these persecutions that were stirred up against him were ultimately energized by, by demons in the angelic conflict. Now the solution is not to go try to cast out the demon or claim dominion over the demon if you'll notice that's never mentioned in that passage there are uh, many Christians who try to take that approach but that wasn't the biblical approach that wasn't Paul's approach he just recognized that we're in a spiritual battle a spiritual warfare and that many times that there are dynamics going on in the immaterial angelic realm demonic realm 
that are having a cause and effect relationship on the opposition to us. And it's not just people. It is ultimately a spiritual battle. Verse verse 8, he said, concerning this thing, that is this thorn in the flesh, which I believe contextually refers to all of this opposition and adversity, persecution and rejection that he faced. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And the idea there is that he went into intense prayer on three different occasions, pleading and begging with God, building a case for why God should take this away so that he would be able to preach the gospel, proclaim the truth of God's word without the distraction of the rejection and the persecutions. And this was God's response. Verse 9, this is the heart of understanding grace orientation. He said to me, quote, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And what God was teaching Paul was that despite all of our natural enhancements, despite our high IQ, education, strengths, whatever our uh, strengths might be, whatever it may be that we think gives us some value and some edge in the Christian life, God is teaching us that you can't rely upon that because that's just the work of the flesh. That is wood, hay, and straw. It has no eternal value. We have to learn to rely exclusively on the sufficiency of God's grace. Because it is only when we are utilizing God's grace and independence upon God's grace that God's strength is made perfect in weakness. Now, what does that mean? Well, first of all, when the text says, my grace is sufficient, this is the Greek word archeo, which means it's enough. It's all that is needed. God gives us everything we need to fit the particular situation. No matter how overwhelming it may be, no matter how many times we may be facing these things, His grace is always enough. It's always provided everything we need to handle the situation, the circumstances, whatever it may be. It's enough. It is sufficient. It is adequate to the task. It that is, God's grace and God's grace alone is all that we need. First, we, so we see that God's grace is sufficient for us. For my, my strength, that is, God's power, His omnipotence, is made perfect in weakness. Now, the next key word we need to see in this statement is that word for made perfect, which is uh, teleo, which is a word that's familiar to us. And it means to bring something to completion, not perfection in the sense of flawlessness, but to bring it to its intended end, to bring it to completion, to bring it to maturity. This is the same word, or it's from the same word group, that we saw over in Galatians uh, 3.3 and Galatians 5.16, that we are to walk by means of the Spirit. And we will not bring to completion the deeds of the flesh. In Galatians 3.3, Paul had said, Did you uh, begin by means of the Spirit, and are you now being completed or matured uh, by means of, uh, of the flesh? No, of course not. Then we looked at James chapter 1, talking about how tests and trials are used to perfect us or to mature us. And it's the same word group. So this is a crucial word group for understanding the dynamics 
of Christian growth. It's God's grace that provides something for us. It's almost presented here as if it is a power in itself. It's not a power. It's just presented that way that God's grace is what stands behind everything He delivers to us in our Christian walk to enable us to handle all the adversities that come our way. Once Paul understood the principle of God's grace, he concludes, Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest in me. So now, rather than emphasizing his own strengths, his own education, his own uh, skills, his own uh, training, his own intellect, the focus is on what God has provided for him rather than his own ability. He understands the principle that the Christian life is a supernatural way of life and can only be completed on the basis of supernatural power. We can't do it on our own. We can't pull ourselves up by our own spiritual bootstraps. Therefore, in verse 10, he concludes he takes pleasure in the adversity that he faces, the infirmities, the reproaches, the needs, the persecutions, the distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak... Then I am strong. That is, when I recognize it's not up to me, but it's up to God, that God's solution is the only solution, then I am strong. That is grace orientation. So now let's take it apart in about 12 points to understand what grace orientation is. First of all, what is grace? We need to define it. We have two key words here, grace and orientation. Grace has to do with undeserved favor or unmerited kindness. It is God's plan for dealing with fallen man, that he is going to supply what man needs, not on the basis of who we are or what we've done or what our talents are, what our strengths are, but on the basis of his character and on the basis of the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross. It's undeserved. It's not based on who we are at all. We have to learn to get that notion behind us. It is not dependent on who we are. It is dependent upon who He is. So the first thing we understand is that grace orientation relates to undeserved favor and unmerited kindness. To understand grace we have to begin at salvation. We have to begin at salvation, that it is by grace that we have been saved through faith. It is God's love that provides the solution for our salvation. So we understand grace at at salvation. And that begins to attack our arrogance because the, the opposite of grace orientation at salvation is arrogant, Dependence upon our own abilities, that somehow we can do something, we can engage in some ritual, we can uh, go to church enough or give enough money or go uh, do enough good deeds, that somehow that impresses God. And so we begin to see that arrogance and the emphasis on self is the opposite of grace orientation. As we get beyond salvation, we begin to understand that the uh, Christian life is based on understanding the sufficiency of God's provision. This is a verse we looked at last week for the promises of God. But it has, it's also part of grace, that God's divine power 
has granted to us. And it's that word granted to us, that giving to us everything that is the focus of grace. In the post-salvation Christian life, God's power has given us not some things, not most things, but everything pertaining to life and godliness. And those two words, life and godliness, incorporate everything. Life is bios, which refers to, it's the Greek word from which we get biology, and it refers to physical life issues. So that's basic logistical grace. God's going to take care of our physical needs. It doesn't mean you won't go hungry at times. It doesn't mean you may not be uh, thirsty at times. There is room within the plan of God that includes testing in those areas. But for the most part, God is going to provide for us. Our overall, He's going to provide for us. He's going to take care of those needs. There will be enough to keep us alive. There will be enough to take care of all those uh, phys- physical needs. It may, be as much, not, may not be as much as we would like. Remember, the Exodus generation went through the wilderness, and for 40 years they wore the same clothes they left uh, Egypt with. Now, if right before you left Egypt, you went to Target instead of Neiman's. Well, you know, you just had to spend 40 years wearing those same old shoes that you got at Target, but they didn't wear out. But you were stuck with wearing those shoes from Target. God provided everything they needed. It, what, he didn't give them a second wardrobe or a third wardrobe or a fourth wardrobe. He just made what they had last. It just never wore out. Their shoes didn't wear out. Their pants didn't wear out. Their clothes, nothing wore out. It just lasted the whole time. So God takes care of everything, all the physical needs. And then the second category here is godliness, which is the Greek word eusebeia, which refers to our spiritual life. So the totality here is that God's given you, at the instant of salvation, everything you need, the potential to handle every situation in life. Primarily, that comes through the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, and the Word of God. And we have that. And it is up to our volition to learn the Word of God, to walk by the Holy Spirit, and then that turns the potential of what we have spiritually into actual spiritual growth. And part of this, of course, in starting in verse 4, has to do with the promises, and that relates to the faith rest drill. Another passage that describes the sufficiency of what God has given us is in Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with most spiritual blessings. Some spiritual blessings. No, every spiritual blessing. See, he's given us, in, in 2 Peter, he's given us everything related to life and godliness. And here he's given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. God is not a tightwad. God has given us everything we need. He has been generous. This is based on His grace and His goodness. He is generous with us. He gives us everything. And what we have to do is to learn to align our thinking to what God has given us. And that's what orientation is. For those of you who spent some time in the military, you remember back before they had satellites and GPS and all the fancy technology they have today, that we used to have to learn how to just take a basic compass 
and a topographical map and figure out how to do the ca calculations with the uh, uh, deviation between mag true north and magnetic north. And we had to learn how to uh, navigate our way through an, uh, an area of land. It was also called land navigation or orienteering. And you had to learn to orient a topographical map to the lay of the land around you and then move from point A to point B by simply using your map and a compass. And one of the first things that you would have to do is to lay the map down and orient it with the compass to, towards true north. And then once you had it oriented towards the north, then you would look at the various topographical features and try to figure out where you were on the map in relation to the topographical features. So what you were doing is aligning the map with reality. You had to orient it. If you had it off-center, you had it. Uh, if you had some large piece of metal near the compass, so that your the needle was uh, off uh, a few degrees, then you weren't aligned according to reality. You weren't properly oriented, and so whatever decisions you made would be wrong because you lacked proper orientation. And that's what happens in life when we operate on arrogance. Our thinking isn't oriented to the reality of God's grace, which is his fundamental principle in operating in human history. He deals with us on the basis of grace in his church-age believers. He's given us everything related to life and godliness. So we take the concept of grace, which is God's unmerited favor, and we link it with this idea of orientation, which is aligning our thinking to ultimate reality, which is defined by his word, and that ultimate reality is characterized by grace, all that comes from the kindness and the benevolence of God. And we begin to learn that nothing in this life is really dependent upon my skills, my abilities, my talents, and my efforts. Now, it's deceiving sometimes because there are things that make it look as if I, if I work hard and if I'm diligent and if I study hard, that I am going to advance and have success and go forward. And there's an element of truth to that. And there are many people that we can point to and say that they applied themselves well, they worked hard, they studied hard, they made good grades, and they were successful in life. But there are many other people out there who work very diligently, and for whatever reason they don't get the opportunities, or they don't, they don't become a Bill Gates, or they don't become uh, a Donald Trump, or someone like that, but they work 40, 50, 60 hours a week, and they're diligent and they're smart, but God just doesn't give them those opportunities. So that ultimately, it is God's grace and God's plan that, that ultimately brings those efforts to fruition. And we have to learn that ultimately it's not our works, our efforts, but it is God's grace and God's plan. It's not that we just sit back and wait for it to just happen. That's just mysticism and irresponsibility. But ultimately, it is not dependent upon us. And then we can also point to people who are lazy, good for nothing, irresponsible, and somehow everything they touch turns to gold. And that is just the grace of God. So we have to recognize that it's always God's grace. It's not us. When there is success, it's due to God's grace. And when there's failure, it's due to our poor volition. We have to realize that the air we breathe, the food we eat, 
the health we enjoy, the jobs that pay our bills, the cars we drive, our friends, our family, our homes, uh, parents that we have, children that we have, everything comes from God. He is the one who has uh, provided all of that. So when we look at grace orientation, it is fundamentally the idea of orienting our thinking to God, aligning our thinking and actions with God's policy of grace. All that we are and have in this life comes from the kindness and the benevolence of God and that nothing is due to our own inherent abilities, talents, our efforts. That is our understanding of just grace orientation. That's what Paul had to learn, that God's grace was sufficient and his success as an apostle had nothing to do with his rabbinical training, with his education, with his tremendous writing skills and native logic. It had to do with God's grace. But once he was oriented to God's grace, then God could use his education, his training, his background, his natural skills in the ministry and in his service to God. But he first had to have that arrogance knocked out of him, and he had to be oriented to God's grace. Second thing we note is that God's grace is this policy toward his creatures, which is based on the principle of non-meritorious blessing. Faith is non-meritorious. Faith is a it's a transitive verb, which means it always takes a direct object. If you get into it grammatically, it always focuses on something. And what faith focuses on is that which has merit. And the focus in the faith rest drill is the promise of God, the provision of God, the power of God. That's where our strength lies, not in our own ability. So we have to knock that arrogance out of us. And it relates to how we... Uh, relate to other people. It relates to how we deal with other people, especially in people tests where we have tendencies to want to strike back or to have revenge or anger, resentment, whatever it may be. Ephesians 4:31 and 32 strikes at the heart of the people relationships. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. That is the essence of grace orientation. And it is aligning our thinking with God's grace as exemplified at the cross, just as God in Christ forgave you. So on the one hand, we have to reject the bitterness, the anger, the resentment, the vindictiveness. And on the other hand, be kind, tender-hearted, and forgiving, just as Jesus Christ was toward us. Third point, the opposite of grace orientation is self-reliance and self-dependence and arrogance. The opposite of grace is dependence upon the creature. It is creaturely orientation and not the creator orientation. We have to maintain that creator-creature distinction. So we think that we have basic and inherent rights to health, to prosperity, to our talents and abilities. We ha- at the core of arrogance is a orientation to entitlement. 
that we think we're entitled to salvation. We think we're entitled to God treating us well because look at what I have to offer Him. And we have to get that entitlement mentality of arrogance knocked out of us and orient to grace. Fourth thing about grace orientation is it's foundational to further advance in the spiritual life. If you don't understand grace at salvation, you can't orient to doctrine at the next level. If you don't understand grace, then when it comes to love, personal love for God the Father and impersonal love for all mankind, you will always have trouble because you're not thinking in terms of unmerited kindness. And that's the core to grace orientation. Grace orientation is foundational to advance in the spiritual life. Failure to grasp this will stifle your spiritual momentum. Fifth point, grace orientation is measured ultimately by gratitude. It's measured by gratitude. Whereas failure to orient to grace is measured by arrogance. And if you notice, there are some people who just, they have no grace orientation. They're never grateful for anything. They always want more, think they ought to have more, think they're entitled to this, think they're entitled to that. Frankly, because of the curse of sin, because of the penalty of sin, there's one thing that we're all entitled to, and that is a rapid orientation to the grave. And we're not entitled to anything else because as fallen creatures, we deserve one and only one thing. But God in His grace keeps us alive. God in His grace has a plan for mankind. God in His grace provides salvation. And the more you think about that, the more we orient our thinking to, to grace and to gratitude for every breath we have, for every meal we have, for every gallon of gas we can afford to buy today. It is all due to the grace of God. Sixth, let's look at some basic characteristics that we find in grace orientation. We start with just that orientation of grace towards salvation and thinking about all that that means for us. And as we move out of that, one of the first things we should develop is a genuine humility. A genuine humility, recognizing that it's not about us, it's about God and His plan and His purposes. A humility actually develops in a couple of different ways. First of all, we have uh, enforced humility. And enforced humility applies to believer and unbeliever alike. It's where we learn authority orientation. We learn discipline from our parents. We learn discipline from teachers, from coaches, from dance instructors, music instructors. And as we learn uh, that basic humility, and it allows us to learn the skills of those disciplined. Without humility, you can't learn anything. You can't be teachable. If you don't have authority orientation, you won't ever learn a thing. So we have to have that orientation to uh, authority, and this moves from genuine humility to teachability. It's amazing how many believers aren't teachable. They come to church, they want to, they pick a church because it's going to reinforce their own prejudices. And then when the pastor says something that they don't agree with, rather than going to the Word of God as the source and say, well, you know, maybe that's what the Bible says, and it's God that's stomping on my toes and not the pastor, they just leave and go to the next church. They just want somebody to confirm and validate their own arrogance. 
And they're not teachable at all. To be truly teachable sometimes is very painful. Because we have to take an honest look at who we are in our own life, our own habits, the way we try to deal with adversity, and recognize that, that we may have been trying to make everything work on our own terms for 20 or 30 years, and it's really a miserable failure. And to look in the mirror of God's Word and face that with honesty and true humility is so threatening to some people that they'll never do it. They just don't have the spiritual courage to be honest with themselves and with the Word of God. And they're just not teachable. As we advance in grace orientation, we develop a relaxed mental attitude about life. We recognize that we're just as sinful as the person sitting uh, across the church from us. Their sins may be uh, shocking to us, but then our sins may be shocking to them. Uh, Their sins may be more overt and uh, hang out there a little more, whereas ours are mental attitude sins, and so people just think we have it all together and we're just as carnal as as the person uh, d- uh, down the street who's uh, involved in drugs and alcoholism and uh, whatever else the, the, the culture offers. But we have a relaxed mental attitude. We're not judgmental. We realize that God's dealing individually with each one of us, and so we can relax and let the Supreme Court of Heaven deal with other people's problems in their spiritual lives. We're not going to gossip. We're not going to malign. We're not going to get involved in trying to solve everybody else's problems. We're just going to relax about life, and we're going to learn to let God's power uh, work in our life. Uh, Third, this develops into a mastery of the details of life. We begin to realize that since God is the one who's going to supply everything we need to accomplish His will for our life, It's not about going out and getting all the status symbols or friends or whatever it may be in life. There's all kinds of details from money to things, education, achievements, promotions, status symbols, uh, sex, whatever it is. These are all the details of life. And people who start pursuing the details of life for happiness just get in a frantic search for happiness and it always ends up in frustration. Because the details of life will never provide stability. They'll never uh, provide happiness. Uh, They may may provide a pseudo-happiness for a while and a pseudo-stability, but as soon as adversity comes and takes it away, the person just collapses. So grace orientation makes us recognize that God provides everything we need to accomplish what He wants us to accomplish. And if we don't have it, then it's not necessary to accomplish God's plan and God's will. And so that leads to gratitude. We develop a a gratefulness to all that God has provided for us so that we are focused on Him, focused on everything that He gives us in order to go forward. So these are the characteristics of grace orientation. And that God is demonstrating that His power is what counts and not ours. Now the Old Testament story that really brings this home is in the book of Judges. And I'm not going to take the time to go through every detail of this story. It's a great story in Judges chapter 7 where God has chosen Gideon to be the judge to deliver the people from the onslaught of the Midianites. 
And so Gideon pulls together uh, an army of the Jews that's going to go against this massive army of, of the Midianites and try to gain victory because God has called him to do this. But God has to teach Gideon grace orientation. And he pulls together an army of some, uh, some 22,000. And Lord's response to that is, Gideon, that's just too many. Well, wait a minute. We're already outnumbered about six to one. Uh, the Midianites had around 125,000, 130,000. And all Gideon had was t- about 22,000. So God says, no, that's just way too many you have. And that's, that's what he's trying to teach us, is it's not about our talents. That's grace orientation. So God said, therefore, proclaiming the hearing of the people, in verse 3 of chapter 7, Whoever is fearful and afraid, let him turn and depart at once uh, from Mount Gilead. And 22,000 people returned and 10,000 remained. So he started off with 32,000, correcting myself. He started off with 32,000, 22 left, and 10 remained. 10,000 against about 125,000. Still pretty, you're pretty overwhelmed. Gideon saying, well, I don't know. But the Lord in verse 4 said, you still got too many. Wait a minute, Lord. We're outnumbered 12 to 1. The Lord said, well, you still got too many. We've got to make it clear that it's about grace and my power and my strength and not about your power and your strength. So we'll have a little test. Take them down to the creek, and as we cross over the water, the ones that uh, bend over and just lap the water up into their, into their mouth, those are the ones who will go with you. And the ones that stop and... Uh, bend down and get down on their knees, well, they're not ready to go to battle. And the number of those who lapped in verse 6, putting their hand to their mouth, was 300 men. But all the rest of the 10,000, 9,700, stopped to take a good long drink. So God said, well, you're not focused, so you go home. And now I've got the right size. I've got 300 to go against about 125,000. And so God was going to demonstrate his power was sufficient in weakness. The same principle that we see that the Apostle Paul had to learn, and it's the same thing that we have to learn, is that God's power is brought to completion in our weakness. We have to be dependent upon Him and in His grace. And, of course, you know the story that that God gave Gideon instructions, very uh, very uh, subtle, crafty, tricky, uh, trickery. He said, okay, take every, every, give every man a, a, a clay pot and put a light inside that clay pot. And when I give the command to, to break the clay pots, everybody's going to shout and break the clay pot, and then these 300 lights will appear. Well, in the way the armies worked at that day, you'd have about one light per company of men. So rather than thinking that there were only 300 men up there, they thought there were 300 companies. And so they all panicked. It was a nice surprise attack. And all of a sudden, they, they, in their panic and their fear, the Midianites started killing each other. And then after they slaughtered each other in the panic, the, the Jew, small Jewish army of 300 moved in and wiped them out. God's grace is sufficient. His way of doing it may not appear to be our way of doing it. It may not fit our preconceived notions, our arrogance, our emphasis on our own uh, capabilities and abilities to solve the problem on our own. But he's going to demonstrate that his way is the only way and the divine solution is the only solution and we have to be oriented to grace. 
So this gets us through our fourth basic skill. Next time we'll look at doctrinal orientation with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to understand your grace, to focus on it, to learn that we must live and think within a framework of your grace, that this is foundational to forward advance. It starts at the cross. And we pray that if there's anyone here this evening that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. All you need to do is to put your trust in Christ for your salvation. It's not about what you've done or what you haven't done. It's not about ritual. It's not about bargaining with God or buying your way into heaven. It's simply trusting in Christ's finished work on the cross. And the instant you put your faith in Jesus Christ, God the Father justifies you, regenerates you. You have eternal life, which can never be taken away from you. Now, Father, we pray that you would help us to understand in, our own, in each of our lives how to orient our thinking to grace through the ministry of God the Holy Spirit as we walk by him and are filled by him. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.